0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
1: Our population has doubled in the past 50 years, but our birth rates per capita are down. There's a lot of reasons for that, and one of them is infertility. So today, meet a woman who's donated her eggs five times.
2: If nothing else, I'm giving my genes and my progeny a chance with somebody who really wants them
3: to succeed and have a great life.
1: A woman who was a surrogate three times, twice successfully.
3: How do you have a baby for somebody else? That's insane. So I started thinking about it, and I was like, okay, it's not as crazy as I thought.
1: A woman going through IVF during a pandemic. I never thought that this would affect,
4: it didn't even cross my mind. And I thought of everything bad possible that could have happened with this egg, not this.
1: And a fertility doctor on how all this works, plus the future of fertility. I'm Kyone Wolf, that's next on Audacious, after the news. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Last week, you heard a conversation about antinatalism, which explored the morality of having children. Les Knight, of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, argued that people should stop having babies, and as the title suggests, let ourselves go extinct. He realizes, though, that his is probably a lost cause. It was only about 70,000 years ago we were down to 10 or 15,000. We figure. And now look at it, we're just so freaking fecund. and we we breed like crazy. He's not kidding. It's currently midway through 2020, and the world population is 7.8 billion. We've doubled our population over just the past 50 years. While the population is growing, fertility rates overall are dropping. So more people are here, but we're having fewer babies. There's a lot of reasons for that, and one of them is infertility. The CDC estimates that nearly one out of eight couples struggles to conceive, but because of assisted reproductive technology, we're upping the population numbers in the United States. The CDC also reports that almost 2% of all U.S. births annually, or about 4 million babies, are here as a result of things like in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, and egg donation. Today I'm joined by Dr. Spencer Richland. He's a board certified reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut, where he's a partner and surgical director. He's been in the baby-making business, so to speak, for over 20 years. I'm also going to chat with three women, one who's donated eggs five times, one who's been a surrogate three times, twice successfully, and one who, through a pandemic, has finally become pregnant using IVF. Throughout the hour, Dr. Richland will provide some basics on the science of fertility. So up first, Egg Donation 101. I asked Dr. Richland to tell me what kind of person he'd be looking for, to be an egg donor.
0: For someone to be an egg donor, we would love them between the ages of 21 and 34, because they're gonna have young eggs and have nice healthy eggs. In order for someone to be an egg donor, they have to be screened. We have to look at her ovaries, make sure she has a good follicle count, healthy eggs. She has to be screened by FDA regulations. So HIV, hepatitis, we want her to see one of our psychologists just to make sure she's on board. She knows what she's doing. We go through her family history. And at the end of the day, if all those things kind of check out, she can be a egg donor.
1: Then what?
0: Then they are stimulated with what's called gonadotropins. Those are shots of medicines right next to the belly button. And what those do is is they make follicles grow. So a lady will make one egg every month. With those medicines, she will make... 12 to 20 follicles get big, nine days of stimulation, four appointments, 36 hours later, we're going to take out the eggs and do what's called an egg retrieval, which is done under IV sedation. Once we remove the eggs, 10 minutes, she goes an hour later and we're all done. And those eggs then are utilized by her recipient.
1: Is there always compensation involved for the egg donor?
0: There is. Well, I'll I'll go back a step. Usually a donation is anonymous, so the person who's donating does not meet the intended parent, but the intended parents can see pictures of them, sometimes a video, baby pictures and adult pictures. In that situation, there is compensation. She is giving her time, energy, and resources. It's a lot of work.
1: What is the typical range of compensation? The typical
0: range is around $8,500, and that is set up, by regulations from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine.
1: Do you know if they have to pay taxes on it?
0: I think so. Damn. I'm not 100% sure. I know. I
1: know. All right. I checked it out, and yes, the IRS treats egg donation income as self-employment. Bummer. Sue Cope knows all about it. She's a 41-year-old Lyme, Connecticut resident, and in her 20s, she donated her eggs. And then she did it again. And then again. And again. And Again, five times over the course of five years. I asked her to take me back to when she first entertained the thought of donating her eggs.
2: I was a waitress at a restaurant in Farmington, and I was young and carefree, and I had a a close friend of mine who... She was six months into having been married and they were trying to have a baby. And she called me one day, super, super upset and said, it's been months they've been trying and she's, nothing's happening, like not even like pregnant for a second. And then it didn't work out just like blank. And they went and got tested. Turns out that the doctors were like, yeah, we don't know. You're going to have to go see a specialist. It's not going to be that easy for you. And it was heartbreaking for her to hear. And for me, I was, let's see, in 2000, and I was in my (laughs) mid-20s. So this was new to me, and I had no idea how to counsel her or help her. I felt so helpless and, like, such a useless friend. And I realized that I can't help her, but it doesn't mean I couldn't help somebody else. So uh, I started looking into – I was talking about this with another friend at the restaurant I was working at. She's like, why don't you donate your eggs, and then you can help another family have a baby. And I was like, I can do that? (laughs) Like, I'm not doing anything with my eggs. This is a brilliant idea. And I actually didn't know there was compensation involved until I was in one of the interviews. They have a multi-interview process. And so I think it was the the end of the first interview where I realized I was going to get paid for it too. And I was like, shoot, I should have been doing this for a long time.
1: Okay, wait, 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 I got to get you to back up. Was there anything in the back of your head that was like, I am launching my genetics into the world and I have no control over what happens afterwards or anything like that.
2: Those thoughts and ideas crossed my mind. But these people that are going through the process of IVF and trying to find a donor that can just give them an egg so they can just try and have a baby, they want this. And so I thought, if nothing else, I'm giving my genes and my progeny a chance with somebody who really wants them to succeed and have a great life. It was more of a compelling reason than a hesitation for me.
1: What was it like at the very beginning of this process?
2: First, the online application, and then an in-person application interview and doctor's appointment at the office. And then, if they liked everything, then I filled in the application with pictures of me, Baby pictures, pictures of me growing up, background information about my colleges where I got my degrees, little blurbs about like why I studied this, like really filling in like a book about my life. I'm like, man, I'd pick me. <laughs> <laughs> and they just put you, they show you the book. So they just put you in a book. You, there's no names attached to it. So once I'm in the book, um, it could be a couple weeks, it could be a couple months before I'm selected, but I, I then become an active donor so um, they write me a prescription for birth control, basically, and I take all the active pills. And then once a donor selects me, they sync their cycle to where I am or I sync to them. So we are in the same place in our cycle. So the day of the donation is also the day that they fertilize and then like everything happens all at once. They come in later.
1: The first time that you successfully donated eggs, this, this procedure's over. You take your gown off, put your clothes back on, walk out the door. You've done it. How'd that feel?
2: In the immediacy, it was um, great relief because it was just so uncomfortable to just be so bloated. (laughs) Emotionally, just me thinking a lot about how I hope it worked because it was a lot to go through. And it's a weird place to be because you don't know the ultimate outcome. Some of the occasions, I'd say three or four of the times that I did it, Uh, They would tell me how many eggs they found and collected. Um, They were always around like a dozen or 15 or whatever that they would collect that were viable. I did this five times. There could be five kids. There could be 60 kids. I have no idea. I won't know. You'll never know. That's not true we have ancestry DNA. Everybody's got their stuff registered. My stuff is registered because I wanted to know my, my ancestry information. And I also selfishly did it because I wanted to be out there in case any of these people that are created here want to know who I am. So you've got at least one 14 year old, if it worked the first time, 14 or 15 year old child. So if when they turn 18, They want to sign up for ancestry DNA in three years. It's going to come back and say, we have a biological mother for you.
1: Well, you get alerted.
2: Yeah. And I'm cool with whatever. If they want to know genetically where they come from and to be able to meet with them and talk to them about it. But if they don't want to meet with me and talk to me about it because it's weird, I get it.
1: (laughs) I think there are some people out there that are like, what? I could never not know. I could never know that there are people with my genetics, and I don't know. Like, what do you think makes you different? Why do you think you are not as attached to that as some other people?
2: That's a deep question. I don't know. Maybe the way that I look at it at the very beginning is just, this isn't about me. (laughs) You know, I was trying to help somebody else. And I hope that it worked. And I think the most exciting for me, looking into the future, is that if I see a link somewhere down the line, that's all I wanted to know is that it worked. And that would be awesome. If I find out that it doesn't work, I, that would probably upset me the most.
1: More than not meeting the progeny.
2: Yeah. The whole family's put their heart and soul into this because they wanted to have a kid. And I didn't even know the complexities of that. As a 26-year-old, Like I was just trying to focus on my friend and help her and I couldn't. And so I knew how helpless I felt as a friend, but I didn't know how, you know, how life altering it is to actually want to have a kid of your own and you can't. And there's all these walls and all these complications involved. And once you start going down the road, unless you have a lot of money, you can't have kids. So it's like you, then you have to look at your privilege. Where, where am I on the scale that I could afford to do this? And, and that you were how, fertile
1: enough. If you went back in time and talked to yourself during that first process and said, hey, Sue, you're going to do this four more times. How would that Sue during the first time respond to that information?
2: I wouldn't have believed you. I'm in a book with hundreds of other women that are young and are beautiful and have all this going for them. And I was so flattered that someone picked me. This is amazing. I thought it was amazing. The day that I went to donate when I was going into the donation room, it's actually hanging in my office right here. The family wrote me a letter, and I was just bawling.
1: If you're comfortable, will you read it?
2: Yeah, so they didn't they didn't know my name, so there's no there's no to anybody, and I'm not supposed to know their name, so they didn't sign it. It says, I really want to thank you for your egg donation. It takes extreme kindness to be a donor. Since I first saw your profile and read about your personality and likes, I felt that kindness was drawn to you. My hesitation was the complexity with travel, so also thank you for traveling the physical distance. My husband and I first learned about egg donation when my sister had infertility problems, and I offered to donate for her. That was how I found out that I have fertility issues myself. Since, through egg donation, my sister has a beautiful, healthy, all smiles baby. It has been such a wonderful outcome that I can't wait to hopefully add a new member to our family. Since you have donated before, you know about all the injections and ultrasounds. It is amazing, at least for me, after a few IVF attempts, how that part is not too bad after a while. I hope you have a good experience. Please know that I'm thinking about you and will always be thankful for you. Best always. It's like the best card.
1: You have two kids. How old are they?
2: I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old.
1: And do they know about this?
2: My own kids do not know about it, but they're too young to understand that, really.
1: Do you think you'll tell?
2: Eventually, yeah. I'll tell them. I mean, I literally signed paperwork saying that I wouldn't seek them out, so I'm not going to do that. But I'm out there. I I can easily be found by these people.
1: When you imagine getting that email saying, hi, you're my biological mother. At this point, how do you anticipate that might feel for you?
2: I think it would be overwhelming and amazing. And I would have all the questions. Like what? Where are you? How are you? What do you look like? When can I meet you? Can I give you a hug? Do you not want to meet me? (laughs) Like, is it appropriate for me to write you back? Can we Zoom? I should probably check my ancestry every once in a while. It's probably going to be a message in my ancestry box that I do not check, but I can tell you for sure a couple more years, I'm going to be probably checking it regularly.
1: (laughs) Because donating an egg is such a specifically massive and consequential, thing to do it is surprising that egg donation isn't talked more about
2: yeah so you say massive and consequential as a donor i didn't feel that i didn't really see it as massive
1: to me it was
2: yeah but this is human life sue this is human ideally the outcome is human
1: life the biggest thing
2: yes you said massive and consequential and i really was and still am very hopeful that the consequences for these eggs is good or at least, great.
1: <laughs> I like that, good? Or at least great.
2: <laughs> it's massively awesome. It's like the coolest thing. If I can, Well, actually, I always felt like surrogacy was the coolest thing.
1: <laughs> that was a convenient toss to our next segment about surrogacy. Thanks to our five-time egg donor, Sue Cope, from Lyme, Connecticut. Next, as promised. How do you
4: have a baby for
3: somebody else? that's insane. And then we really started talking about it. I was like, okay, it's not as crazy as I thought.
1: What it's like to use your womb as a room for someone else's baby. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm betting everything I've got on This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about some of the ways people use technology to get themselves or others pregnant. This segment, you'll meet a woman who is a successful surrogate. Twice. But first, Dr. Spencer Richland, reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut, gives us Surrogacy 101. I asked him when surrogacy is the thing to do.
0: Um, it's used in situations where a female partner does not have a uterus. Sometimes a woman's not born with the uterus, for example, or had a hysterectomy. Sometimes we have situations where the uterus uterus is damaged. I don't love that word, but there's been surgeries, fibroids, and the uterus is not great to carry a pregnancy. Sometimes we have medical conditions where one of our patients has become pregnant in the past, had a real difficult pregnancy, and they're like, you know something? I don't want to do this with my own uterus. We've had situations where a patient, let's say, has a breast cancer. And she's like, you know something? I want to continue my treatment, put my embryos in someone else and uh, do it that way. And also we have a lot of single men and married men couples who utilize donor egg and need a surrogate. That situation is the surrogates, kind of the same thing, are heavily screened. We like them to have had a pregnancy in the past themselves because then we know they have proven success. We go through her records. She has her own legal advice. Our intended parents have their own legal advice. We'll make sure her uterus is good. We'll put some water in the middle of the uterus and make sure it's clean so we can put a nice embryo in there. So she's screened also by FDA regulations, and there are serious regulations. So she has to have HIV hepatitis done. So does the sperm source, HIV hepatitis, and the egg source.
1: Is there an age range?
0: Not necessarily. I would tell you most of our gestational carriers are in their 30s or below.
1: If I was a surrogate, how much on average would I make?
0: You'd make probably more than $30,000. You know, someone is taking on a lot of responsibility, and that's nine months. And it also affects her, her partner, her children. There's a lot to it that the surrogate's doing. So it's, it's, it's very special and very involved.
1: Now meet somebody who went through this very special and involved process. Heather Manojlovich is from Fort Wayne, Indiana. She's a mother of two and was a surrogate or gestational carrier three times, two of them successfully. I asked her to take me back to when she first thought that carrying someone else's baby would be a viable option.
3: I was at the park with my kiddos, met another mama, and we started talking. She was pregnant. And it turned out that she wasn't pregnant with her own baby. She was pregnant with a surrogacy baby. And so that kind of like started the conversation. And at first I thought she was a little crazy because I was like, how do you have a baby for somebody else? That's insane. And then we really started talking about it. She was like, well, I have my own kids. I don't want any more kids, but I had super easy pregnancies. So why wouldn't I help somebody else, you know, achieve that dream of parenthood? So I started thinking about it and I was like, okay, it's not as crazy as I thought. I also have my own kids. I also had easy pregnancies. Once I had that meeting and started thinking about it, that was kind of what started everything for me. Once we got through the initial application and screening phases and everything with that, that was when we really started um, kind of introducing the idea to our daughters talking about, okay, mommy and daddy, we have you guys, you're amazing kiddos and we love you so much. And we don't want any more kiddos ourselves, but we want to help a family that can't have a baby. And so what the doctor is going to do is they're going to grow A little tiny baby. They're so tiny you can't even see them except through a microscope. And then the doctor's gonna put that baby in mommy's belly, and we're gonna help the baby grow and take care of the baby until the baby can go home with their parents. So,
1: and how do the kids respond to it? They were just like, okay,
3: cool, you know. And um, my oldest was excited to kind of really be a part of it. She liked to like sing to the baby, and if we were like at the grocery store. I like craved raspberries a lot. And so every time we would go to the grocery store, she would know like, we should get raspberries for the baby. I'm like, okay, girl, you got it covered,
1: so. Will you talk about one of the parents who you met? uh, Well, future parents.
3: For my first intended parent, what really struck me with his profile when I was reading his profile at first was that he was in a relationship for 10 years and his partner did not want to have kids. So he ended that relationship to be able to become a dad. And I was just like, that is massive
1: because- That's not the story you normally hear. Yeah,
3: exactly. You know, and he could have said like, oh, my partner doesn't want to have kids. So this is just a dream that I'm going to move on from. And he like, I can't imagine how hard that would be to be in a relationship with somebody for 10 years. And so, yeah. And the cool thing about his story too, was that during our journey, he met his partner um who's now his husband and so that was really cool to kind of like see that blossom because it was like when they met he was like oh hey by the way i'm having a baby how do you feel about that that's a lot of new life all at once yes exactly so that was that was really really cool so yeah and then for my second experience um i was matched with a same-sex couple that was based out of australia they are originally from The Kazakhstan area. So it was really cool to learn because there were like cultural differences, things that I didn't know. And so that was really cool to learn about them. And they actually have moved from Kazakhstan to Australia just to be able to provide a life, you know, that was more conducive to their child with having parents that were same sex. And like, once again, I just thought like these parents are incredible people, like doing everything they can to provide the best life for their child. And it was just really moving. So
1: So can we jump forward to the birth days?
4: Yeah. All right.
1: What was that like? Tell me about both of them. The first time that you gave birth to a child that belonged to someone else.
3: The first surrogacy delivery, I remember reaching out to my intended parent and saying like, Hey, I'm going to the hospital. I'm kind of having some contractions. We'll see what happens. And then when I was at the hospital, we thought things were kind of slowing down. And then the nurse had come in to check on me and I just like, the doctor wasn't even in there. The nurse had to deliver the baby. Everything happened super fast. And then I got a hold of my intended parent because he was actually in Japan on vacation. And so we were like, Hey, your baby's born. You're a dad. Congratulations. And so he got on a flight as quick as he could. Um, and he got there really quickly, even though I would have loved for him to be in the room when his baby was delivered. I still think it was like, it was a nice balance because obviously everything was quick and crazy in delivery. Um, and so that may have been, you know, a little daunting for a first time parent, just kind of watching all that going on. Um, and then I got to, like actually see and soak in the moment that he got to meet his baby for the first time. And like the second that he came in the room to meet his baby, like there were other people because everybody knew like, Oh, he's going to see his baby for the first time. Like we have to see. So, but the second that the baby heard his dad's voice, like he just like scanned his eyes over and was just like looking in dad's direction. Like, that's my papa. And it was like, it was so cool. And I was like, this is why I was a surrogate for this exact moment. Like, uh, I I couldn't even handle it. I loved it. It was so sweet.
1: After you gave birth to that child, did you have any struggles at all psychologically or physically?
3: I think that's a really good question. And there are, I think it's important too, to like say that you know, there is an array of motion of emotions that you can go through after a surrogacy, you know, you have, um, you carry this baby for nine months and then you deliver this baby and you have this like postpartum body that you look like you're four or five months pregnant, but like you don't have a sweet newborn baby to show for it. And so there are aspects of that that are kind of difficult. Um, but I know even with my experience, I I was like on such a high after delivery that I was like, this is such a freaking amazing experience. Like I felt like I had climbed Mount Everest or something like that. So I honestly had never been a surrogate before. So I was a little worried, like, am I going to have some major emotional upset? Um, You know, I wasn't sure, but I think the transition from me being a surrogate Um, to my role after having, you know, delivered was a good transitional one for me, like physically and mentally. Um, After delivery, it wasn't just like, oh, there's the handoff and then everything is done and this never happened sort of thing. Like my room was right next to my intended parents and they wanted um, pumped breast milk, which I was open to doing. Um, and so I would like pop into their room to like bring them, um, the breast milk that I had expressed and they would be like tired. And I
1: could just tell, I was like, Oh,
3: sorry guys, I'm going to go back to sleep, but here's some milk for your baby. And so that was a really good transition. Like my own family, came up to visit me and they also visited with the intended parents with the baby. So they could kind of Mm -hmm. see everything come full circle where they saw the baby with his parents and, and they had built that relationship with them too up until delivery. So it just like all kind of came together just the continued that healthy interaction after delivery. Um, and then even me continuing to pump breast milk, cause I did it for about four or five months after delivery. Like that was a good transition for me because it does feel like when you are a surrogate after you deliver, sometimes it can kind of feel like I had this really important role and I was doing all these things, going to doctor's appointments, doing updates, like, making sure I'm eating and exercising and doing all these things. And then all of a sudden it just kind of stops and you're like, do I matter? (laughs) Like not, not in that you need to matter sort of way. Like I don't mean that in like a, like a tantrum sort of way, but you're just like, where, where do I fit into this equation now? You know, like where is my worth and how do I keep moving forward and finding myself and things that I'm doing.
1: Now, you had already made the decision with your family that you had two kids and you were done having children. And then you had two pregnancies that came to full term and they were fast and relatively easy. Did it make you reconsider having another child of your own?
3: Life is crazy and life does throw some curveballs at you. I ended up going through a divorce. But like I said, life throws you curveballs. And I ended up meeting somebody and I remember... The first night that we met, um, out for dinner, we were talking about all the things you're not supposed to talk about on a first date. And we were talking about kids and family size and he had a daughter and I had two daughters and we were both kind of like, I'm happy with what I have going on for my dynamic and parenting. And I remember saying distinctly, but you never know because sometimes you meet the right person and plans change. And we are actually expecting our own child together. So that's, that's the crazy story of life, you know?
1: Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder too, of course, there is a financial benefit to going through this as well. It's not all I just want to do you a favor. Um, I wondered to what degree did the financial input have on your choice to do this?
3: it it would be crazy to say that the compensation from surrogacy doesn't benefit the surrogate's parents or family because it obviously does um you know we were definitely able to do some things with that compensation that we just otherwise would not have done but it definitely wasn't my main driving force you're committing two years of your life to doing this process and I remember doing a quick calculation. And I think based on my compensation and all of the time and the travel and everything, it was like the equivalent of making a dollar an hour or something crazy like that. So people aren't doing it solely for the compensation.
1: When you would be walking around and you're, you've got a big belly and someone says, oh, congratulations, what it it do? And what did you pick out a name yet? And, la, 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 and all the questions that you get when you're pregnant how would you figure out how much to disclose? And I'm talking like you're in the grocery store. Maybe you don't know these people just life in general. How do you decide how much to say, well, actually, and how <laughs> much to say, thank you. Uh,
3: yes. No, that's, a, that is also a great question. And something that initially at first, like if somebody would say like, Oh my gosh, congratulations. When are you due? I think after like two times of me saying like, Oh, thanks, but I'm a surrogate. The baby's not mine. I realized like, I can actually just answer their question. People just love pregnant people, like pregnant ladies. And I can just say, oh, I do on this date having a boy, like, and just move on from there, which is sometimes funny if you have your kiddos with you, because I would have my five-year-old and she would be like, yep, it's not our baby. And I'd be like, she's not wrong. So, so yeah, I just kind of like roll with it. And if you can answer it, if you're just like at the checkout and you're not wanting to make a big thing of it, I would just say, Oh, this is my due date, this date. And, you know, having a boy. And, and then if I did have my daughter with me and if she did pipe in about this, not being our baby, then, then we could like kind of cross that bridge when we got there. And then that was a super cool thing to talk about too with people because they were like, wow, she's so open to this. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like if you're teaching kids love, that's what they learn. And we're excited to be loving on this baby and helping someone else become a dad, so.
1: That was soon-to-be mother of three, Heather Manojlovich. After the break. I worked so hard to
4: get this egg. What if, like, I got sick at the grocery store or something and then infected my loved ones or this new embryo? Like, it was just this weird mental
1: heaviness. But it's like going through IVF, during a pandemic. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about some of the ways people use technology to help themselves or others get pregnant. You met an egg donor a surrogate, and now you'll meet a woman who's going through in vitro fertilization or IVF during a pandemic. Dr. Spencer Richland, reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut, is back to give us the basics on IVF. I asked him what IVF does for people that their own reproductive system may not be able to do on its own.
0: When someone's trying on their own, let's say they have a 28-day cycle, day 14, they're going to release one egg. That egg is going to get picked up by the two. And then if they're trying for pregnancy, egg and sperm will meet in the tube, and the embryo will move through the tube and move into the uterine cavity. So they release one egg every month. With IVF, it's a little different. What they're doing is they're taking what's called gonadotropins, which are follicle-stimulating hormone. And you dial up a dose, and you take about nine to 12 days of shots of FSH next to your belly button, and you, first step, you stimulate and they're not just making one follicle every month like they do on their own. Guess what, we're gonna make a ton of follicles get big. And over those nine to 12 days, the follicles are gonna go from five millimeters to 20 millimeters. Each follicle will have an egg. 36 hours later, they go to what's called a transvaginal egg retrieval. We use a vaginal probe with a cool ultrasound machine, and we suck out the fluid out of every follicle, and we get an egg out of every follicle. The world average of eggs retrieved is about 12. At that point, we put egg and sperm together and then they grow for five days in the lab. And so the next morning we call them, hey, you fertilize. Day three, they're eight cell embryos. Day five, they're what's called blastocysts or day five embryos. That day five embryo is placed back into the uterus. The rest of the embryos are frozen and then we check a pregnancy test in nine days. So it's basically removing eggs egg and sperm in the lab, making embryos and putting them back into the uterus.
1: So once you have the eggs that have been fertilized in the lab, and you're ready to put them into the woman, how do you decide how many to put in her?
0: So we're now putting in one embryo at a time. And you know why it's safer, we used to put in two or three many years ago, then we would get into multiple pregnancy. But a multiple pregnancy is somewhat risky because we have a higher chance of diabetes and hypertension and cesarean section so where the country is now and where our practice has been for a while is one baby at a time healthy single embryo transfer that's why we don't have a lot of twins in ivf that much anymore so we're putting in one embryo ivf is really really doable it has huge pregnancy rates because think about it you're bypassing the tubes you don't need egg pickup you're just putting an embryo right through the surface into the uterus it's incredible
1: Heather Bauer of Wilton, Connecticut, became a patient of Dr. Richland and Dr. Mark Landeris after she had one very easy and successful pregnancy, followed by three miscarriages. I asked her to tell me about the IVF schedule she was working with as she took those shots to stimulate her egg follicles. Seven days in,
4: you go every other morning for your morning monitoring. You have blood work, and then you have an ultrasound. The ultrasound will tell you how big your eggs are getting so that they can retrieve them my first time. I go in, Dr. Landera said, there's none that we can retrieve. So we do another round. Uh, We get, I think, six eggs that time. Boom, six. Well, how are we even going to choose? We send them away to be genetically tested because that was advised because of my age as well. And how old are you at this point? So I'm 41. So it was last year. So the second time they all were gone. Third time we go, they're like, well, you have a boy egg. There was something that came up in the chromosomes that they were nervous about. It turns out it was called Kleinfelter syndrome. It's a syndrome that happens during puberty where the male has female chromosomes that could come out, meaning like breast development, a smaller in height, and not to mention he could be infertile. How am I going to know that I'm bringing someone into the world that? might not have the ability to do what I'm trying to do. I feel like he's going to look at me one day and say, so you knew I couldn't have kids? Like, why would you do that? I don't know. It just was this weird emotion. So we we actually still have this egg. And Dr. Richland advised that we do it one more time. So this was the fourth try. And this was success. It was a healthy boy egg. I'm like crying, right? I'm so excited. Now, of course, I get all freaked out. My husband and my parents, you know, they are like, listen, you made it this far. Okay. You did this. Now this is out of your control. It's going to work or it's not. So, January 28th, we get this news
1: of 2020.
4: Yes. Yeah. I heard about 2020. Yeah. Well, fast forward now. My husband has, he's the youngest of six. His siblings all live in Europe. They were all coming to visit us in April of 2020 this year. In January, they all canceled this trip because of the virus. So my husband was like, this doesn't sound good. He's like, I'm just telling you, I think we need to start preparing for things, like just man, whatever. I never thought that this would affect, it didn't even cross my mind. And I thought of everything bad possible that could have happened with this egg, not this. And we get this news and I'm like, okay, so I have to go back in to talk to Dr. Richland. Now, my first appointment with him is like first week in March, like March 2nd, March 3rd. And their number one priority at that time was to take care of the women that were already pregnant
1: or delivering. So he's saying basically, yeah, we've got this embryo that we are very excited about putting into your body. But because of the coronavirus, we might have to hold on to a bit longer.
4: Yes, I was fine with that. And, you know, I think it actually put my mind at ease because it was like the world froze. I couldn't do anything. So now we're fast forward. Now it's the first week in May and I get a call. We can see you if you'd like to do this. If you're comfortable, we're open. And you cannot come with anyone. So it was different now. If I have to do this, I have to do this on my own. And also I worked so hard to get this egg What if, like, I got sick at the grocery store or something and then infected my loved ones or this new embryo? Like, it was just this weird mental
1: heaviness. Yeah, a lot of weight, a lot of responsibility on something that is already the utmost responsibility and weightiest thing, one of the weightiest things a human being can do. So, that's a lot on you.
4: It was. And I just kept
1: thinking if I don't do it now,
4: the long, it could get worse, which we may be experiencing now in the world. And, I also didn't want to keep getting older cause I thought it could be harder, you know, even though a month older and whatever, but you know, it still, to me, it was like, I, I gotta do this. And I still had to maintain shots during the first trimester, which I'm, I just ended on Saturday. The best part of this is my husband is working from home. I couldn't have done this myself. I would have had to drive to his office or have a neighbor or friend, which is vulnerable cause it's in your butt. Like, I mean, as close as you are with your neighbors and your girlfriends, I'm like, I don't really want you seeing me like this. And what if you don't measure it right? Like, what if it, you mess it up? So you have to trust the person that's doing it, clearly. You know, so that maybe was my calmness. But like, I need, I really want to put myself in a bubble right now until February, which is our due date. I guess we couldn't have planned it at a better time, but we also probably couldn't have planned it at a worse time.
1: Because you have at least that one other embryo that's still being frozen and contained, where does that sit in your psyche, knowing that that's out there, that it's a possibility?
4: Clearly, this is now what I have to focus on with my energy. But I can't physically think about letting that egg go. I was thinking about maybe implanting that egg if this didn't work. I won't won't let that go.
1: Not yet. When your baby boy is old enough to hear about how he came into this world, will you tell him?
4: Yes. I thought about this, too. Um, our neighbor yesterday, only because she saw me in a bathing suit. And she was like, hi. I'm like, it's not quarantine. Wait, <laughs> even I really am pregnant. She said, well, you know how many people are going to be in his class? She's like, there's going to be a ton of quarantine babies. And my husband said, yeah, but he didn't come the old fashioned way. And I started laughing. I'm like, yeah, you know, I can't really, I can call him a quarantine baby, but he was a little bit more work. Have you ever gotten pushback
1: on going through all this?
4: Um, I have. I've gotten some negative feedback from people that I considered very close to me because they believe that I should have their thoughts and it be more of a natural conception as opposed to doing this um, man-made. Did that surprise you? Yes. Cause I could not for the life of me figure out why you wouldn't think that this is great and amazing and just, you know, how far science has come. And
1: I wonder if the people who didn't approve of you using science and technology to have this child also maybe wear glasses or contact lenses or any other invention of humanity to improve our existence and health.
4: I do agree with that. And I, um, when you start to talk about life and humans and procreation, everyone likes to get a little religious, political, you know, it can get hairy, but I do believe that when this child comes and people that were maybe not so positive, they're not gonna think for one second when they meet him, oh wow, why did Heather ever do this? So that too will be brushed away and I will choose to forget what they said.
1: That was Heather Bauer from Wilton, Connecticut. She's due with her second child in February. Back to Dr. Richland from Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut. He's been with us the whole show, giving us the lay of the reproductive land. And I couldn't resist talking with him about the future of his field. What advances is he excited about right now? And what will it mean for future humans?
0: What's happened now is, real quickly over the last five, ten years, is we can take the embryo on day five and take a piece of the embryo that's called preimplantation genetic testing. And we can tell if the embryos that we have are good or not. That means are they 46 chromosomes or not? And in couples who have known genetic conditions, let's say they're carriers of medical conditions, we can test the embryo and find out does that embryo have that condition or not? And then put an embryo in that doesn't. Or like our patients who have breast cancer, they have the breast cancer gene, we can find out which embryos has it or not. We can also know the sex of the embryo too.
1: So I've got to ask, the further down this road of knowledge that we go down in terms of what we can know for sure about an embryo, does that bring up any sort of ethical issues for you?
0: So then, well, the next move is going to be a concept of polygenic screening you could find out other things about the embryo. Does the embryo, what's the hair color of the embryo? Future mental illness, potentially, heart disease, kidney disease. So you have five embryos. Does embryo number one have a higher chance of having hypertension or diabetes? Kind of these subtle issues, stature, tallness. Some of those things obviously make me uncomfortable, but we're not going to allow those ethical issues to make any of us uncomfortable, and to show any disrespect.
1: If someone does want to go down that route of getting their embryos analyzed so they can make that choice, they can just go to someone else, maybe in the future, who would do what you would not Right. I mean, right
0: now, we don't have legislation on embryo testing telling our patients or the physicians what to do. And at some level, let's ignore the polygenic screening issue. Just in general, regular IVF we like that because we want our women to run the roost. Whatever they want is what we want them to do. But there may be some some discussions down the road. You're right, and we'll have to you know we'll have to deal with those as they come up.
1: What would you say to somebody who would argue? I think that if we have the technology to talk about gender or sex, hair color, eye color, disposition, risk of uh, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera, and they said, I think that's actually the right way to go, what would you say to them? I mean, I,
0: I definitely think there's going to be two sides of this. I think if that ever happens, even if you could find out if a future child had a higher chance of hypertension, diabetes, or heart disease, I think if a couple feels that they wanted to look at that and that was available down the road, I, I, you know, I'm i very into freedom of choice. But I think the panel that we're going to have available has to be respectful and not make people uncomfortable.
1: When you look at the future of fertility and being able to bring more children into this world is something like, God, the matrix, <laughs> you know, where you've got a baby and a capsule and it's got all the plugs and the tubes. And then when it's fully grown, you just cut it loose. Is that is that real? Is that for real?
0: The matrix, I'm going to make you laugh. I have not watched it on purpose.
1: <laughs> I'm embarrassed.
0: I have not on purpose. No, that's
1: okay. That's all but, right. but you get the gist.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. It's nothing it's not even on the horizon. I hope that doesn't happen. You know why? Because having a pregnancy inside of you, maybe there's some good bonding. There's some good movement. They hear good sounds of the couple or the single person who's getting pregnant. I think that's so important. So that's not on our horizon. Yet. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Wild. You would just make an appointment and pick up your baby from the lab.
1: (laughs) Gotcha day. Yeah. Um, If it weren't for the work you do, If it weren't for the technology you use, so many human beings would not exist. How does it feel to be a part of that system that is responsible, in part, for bringing in so many humans who otherwise wouldn't exist? And considering the world and the doubling of our population over the last 50 years, is there any sort of, and I know I'm asking this question to a fertility doctor, <laughs> right. but is there any sort of hesitation like, is this the right thing to do?
0: I'm going to make you laugh. I never thought about the world population. I know, I know, you know why? Because I want to help people and I want them to meet their goals and, and otherwise they couldn't and, and their lives will be so fulfilled by building if they so choose. It's, you know, it's my absolute pleasure to help everyone.
1: So the future of fertility is, in a way, inconceivable. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Telarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Find more information and subscribe to our show at ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KionWolf. And if egg donation, surrogacy, or IVF is part of your life, I really want to hear your thoughts. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag AudaciousPublic. Thanks for listening.